0: Hi friends, how are you today? I hope you're having a wonderful day so far. My name is Bailey Sarian and today is Monday, which means it's Murder, Mystery, and Makeup Monday! If you are new here, hi! My name is Bailey Sarian and on Mondays, I sit down and I talk about a true crime story that's been heavy on my... Nog in, and I do my makeup at the same time. So, today I do have to add a disclaimer. I would do my normal, like, warning, blah, 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 but like today's story is pretty intense. It's pretty brutal. There's just, it involves like everything. I don't really like to go into graphic detail in my stories, if you haven't noticed. I just kind of like vaguely mention things. It's just heavy. It's very, very heavy. I think. A lot of times we just wanna hear the story and not necessarily hear all the gruesome details, but with this story, it's almost like you can't avoid some of the details. So I apologize in advance for how intense it is, but it just kind of involves everything. This story has been highly recommended since day one, and I've been avoiding it just because I felt like, eh, it's been talked about a million trillion times, like what else can I add to it? But you know, I'm doing it for you guys because you've been asking. And honestly, I had the story so wrong. I thought I knew this story. Turns out I did not. Nay nay. Other than that, I will shush my little mouth and let's get into today's story. Today we're talking about Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. Carla was 17 years old and a high school student. She had a part-time job working at a local pet shop when she first met Paul Bernardo. At this time, Paul Bernardo was 23 years old and attending the University of Toronto, and he was studying to become an accountant. Now, it was said that he was doing well in school and he was on his way to graduate. October 17th, 1987, Carla was attending a pet food convention in Scarborough, Scarborough? Scarborough, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So, mm-hmm. So Carla is working at this convention. They're doing like pet food stuff, ooh. And as the night ended, she and a coworker went down to the hotel restaurant to grab some food. So the two of them, they're eating, they're sitting, you know, and then that's when Paul Bernardo walks into the restaurant. Now, Carla and Paul, they made eye contact, like when he walked in, and they, they say, or it was said, that it was just an instant connection, lust at first sight. Paul was over six feet tall. He was said to be an extremely good looking guy. He was quite charming. He approached Carla and the two started chatting it up. Now the two of them, they just clicked. And the coworker that was with Carla was like, okay, well, I guess I'll be going now, you know? Cause she saw that they were just hitting it off and she didn't want to get in the way of that. So she takes off. Now Carla and Paul, they end up sitting there at the restaurant, just talking about anything and everything for hours. And when the restaurant closed, that's when the two of them headed up to Carla's hotel room, where they involved in some sexual relations. From my understanding, the age of consent in Canada is 16 years old. so. Not illegal, but she's still, you know, there's just a big age difference and still fairly young, but okay. So Carla, you know, she was just believing that Paul was the man of her dreams and the two made a very good looking couple. Paul also told many of his friends that, you know, it was just a match made in heaven, that he had found his soulmate and how he would do anything for Carla and Carla would do anything for him. Now, Carla, she was the oldest of three daughters and she was, well-liked in school, she was pretty, she was somewhat popular. And growing up, she lived in St. Catharines in the province of Ontario with her family. In school, it was said that Carla had many boyfriends and many boys interested in her. But when she met Paul, it was all she could talk about with her friends. You know, he was a much older man, he was in college, like she would just brag often to her friends about Paul. And they all just thought it was so cool. Now Paul, he was the youngest of three children. It was said that he was a sweet kid and had a charming smile, but that he had a very difficult upbringing or a difficult childhood. Um, His mother was verbally abusive towards him and his siblings. Then when Paul was 16, he found out that the man he called dad was not his biological father. Now this was upsetting and it broke all trust he had with his parents. I don't know, because I read different things. Some people say like it was an accident how he found out. And then some people say like his mom just randomly like said it when she was being verbally abusive towards him. Either way, it just, it really affected him. So again, around the age of 16, that's when Paul began peeping through the windows of his female neighbors. He would watch them as they undressed. And he would do this like at any chance he could get. He would watch women through their open windows. Um, So AKA a peeping Tom. But as he got older, Peeping through windows just wasn't cutting it for him anymore. And Paul said that his fantasies just started to become darker and darker, and he would dream about taking advantage or just taking control over women. But at that age, he wasn't acting on it just yet, but it was like starting to happen. So, yay. So, in September of 1983, that's when Paul started studying at the University of Toronto in Scarborough. Scarborough. Come on, Bailey, Scarborough. <sighs> He's studying there. His friends and the people who knew him, they they really liked him. He had, again, this charm about him. He can make friends with anyone. And overall, everyone just thought Paul's a great guy. You know, he, just people wanted to be around him. Often, Paul was seen as the life of the party. And if Paul was at the party, then you knew it was like, it was gonna be a good time. Paul did have a few girlfriends throughout college things would always start really well. It would be like this picture perfect relationship. But then as time went on, um, the relationship, or at least their sexual relationship would turn more abusive, violent, and sometimes controlling. And then at that point is when the women would break it off. In the spring of 1988, a sexual predator was roaming the streets in Scarborough. By May, there had been seven different reports made by women to the local police sharing their their attacks. The local police, they got on TV and they were just warning women who are watching, look, there's this predator, he's still out on the streets. They were telling women to not walk around at night alone, to not stay out late unless someone was with them and just, trying their best to warn everybody. Whoever this attacker was would grab women when they were leaving the bus stop at night and were walking alone. Some women were attacked when they were on their evening run in the park. They'd be approached from behind. The person would get them behind some bushes or kind of like in a little, secluded area, and that's where they would be assaulted. His victims were forced to perform oral intercourse, sodomy, and were sometimes beaten afterwards. It was pretty intense and pretty freaking scary. The first reports that were made about this predator were just Not that this is like not as bad, it's still bad, but it was just about a man groping the victims. But then after about a year went by with still no suspect in custody, the attacks turned more violent. Um, The media gave this person the name the Scarborough Rapist. Everybody in the city was just on high alert. Many statements were made from witnesses and the victims, but the police could not seem to get an accurate description of who this person was because the women had been attacked from behind. They really didn't get a clear shot of their attacker's face. All that they could tell was that whoever this guy was, was a guy for starters. He was young, he was good looking, and he had light colored hair. So that didn't really narrow it down too much, but, That's what they had to work with. Now, as time went on, police were able to collect about a hundred different DNA samples from potential suspects, but so far, like nothing was a match. That's when the Toronto police had called in an FBI profiler to help create a profile of who this guy was. So the profiler analyzed the police reports and was able to link four more attacks to the Scarborough, Scarborough Rapist. I'm so sorry I keep butchering this name. I'm trying my best. But they linked four more attacks to this person, which brought the total to 11 victims. So the FBI analysts determined that the attacks were anger-based and sadistic in nature, which was like a rare combination. But whoever this person was, was very dangerous. Now the profiler, they felt that this was a high-functioning, intelligent, psychopathic, sexually sadistic offender. And they believe that whoever it was lived in the area, most likely in a family household, had to be in their early 20s and had to have violent relationships with women. So again, when Paul and Carla first met in the fall of 1987, there had already been three attacks linked to the Scarborough Rapist. Now, Carla, she never suspected Paul could be the one linked to these crimes because their relationship seemed picture perfect. Paul would show up with flowers and he would do this pretty often, he would give her gifts at every chance he could, and he just treated her really well. Always thinking of Carla and just expressing how he wanted to to just be with her forever and take care of her. Their relationship seemed to move quickly, but they were infatuated with one another and they just couldn't keep their hands off of each other. So they had been dating for over 18 months and Paul would drive over 80 miles to St. Catherine's to visit Carla several times a week. Now Carla's family, they, They loved Paul. It was said that they loved Paul. They thought he was a great catch. He was well-educated. He was handsome. His life was on the right track. They didn't mind the age difference between the two. They just thought he was great. That sucks. This is a side note. I think a lot of us have this image of what we think these awful people look like, right? We just think of these monsters, these atrocious beings, right? Like, ugh. But we need to get out of our heads that these sickos look like monsters. They don't look like monsters. They're attractive, normal, you would never guess type of people. So yeah, I don't know what to do with that information though, because it sounded like there was no red flags with this guy. Well, yes there was, I think they were being, okay, we continue. In the spring of 1989, Carla graduated from high school and was really now trying to plan what the next chapter in her life was, you know? But when it came to Carla and Paul, like their relationship, it went from Carla telling her friends that, you know, everything was great and perfect, to now Carla telling her friends that Paul was becoming verbally abusive towards her. But soon after they would have an argument, Carla would forgive Paul and apologize for his wrongdoings. He would maybe show up with a gift to show he was sorry, and then they would just move on. Yeah, so things just kind of Or changing. In December of 1989, Paul and Carla, they went on a romantic getaway to the Niagara Falls. And that is where um, Paul got on one knee and proposed to Carla. And she said, yes. So Carla went back home, like all excited, you know, and told her parents like that they're engaged. And the parents were thrilled because now they're gonna have Paul, like their son-in-law. And he was such a dream to them at that time. So Paul and Carla decided to set their wedding date for the spring of 1991. On May 29th, 1990, police released a sketch of what they believe the Scarborough rapist looked like to the public. Now, when the sketch was released, it was on the front pages of the papers. And so everybody was seeing it, right? So friends of Paul Pernardo were like, hey, have you seen this? Like, it kind of looks like, Paul a little bit if you squint like it looks like Paul. With this information, one of Paul's best friends actually contacted Toronto police and said that the drawing looked just like his friend Paul Bernardo. So they make a note of this. And then by November of 1990, so a couple months go by, there were several people who had contacted police saying that the sketch looked just like Paul Bernardo. So with this information, the police find Paul, they bring him in for questioning, and then they ask if they can get a DNA sample from him, which Paul willingly gave them. The DNA was sent over to be tested, but at this time they had hundreds upon hundreds of DNA samples waiting to be tested. So it sat on a shelf with all the other ones, just waiting for its turn a very, very unfortunate move. Now, it was said that at this time, DNA testing was still somewhat new, and the technology was just a lot slower than it is today. So going through all of the DNA was gonna take some time, and it did take some goddamn time way too much time. So after Paul was questioned, I don't know if he got freaked out or he just didn't, he didn't care, but he decided to move from Scarborough to St. Catharines to live with Carla and her family. Now they thought, Carla and Paul thought it would be best to move in with Carla's family because then they could save money. And then um, once they had enough money, they could get a place of their own. But it was kind of funny because after Paul moved, all of a sudden, all the crimes stopped happening in Scarborough and seemed to pick up around St. Catharines. The family really did not think Paul could be related to these crimes in any way. They just really adored him, especially Carla's younger sister, 15 year old Tammy. She looked up to Paul as like the older brother she never had. Paul was developing very dark urges towards Carla's younger sister, Tammy. It was said that, you know, he would watch her undress from time to time, all creepily when she was unaware. So Paul gave in to his urges and he told Carla that he really wanted something that Carla couldn't give him. And that thing was a virgin. He made Carla feel bad because, you know, she wasn't a virgin, but the closest thing to Carla's virginity would be her younger sister Tammy's virginity. So Paul pressured Carla to let him have her virginity. And Carla said that she wanted to please Paul or he would he would leave her. So she and Paul came up with a plan to drug her younger sister so Paul could have sex with her. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I told you the story is disturbing, okay? Now this would be Carla's Christmas present to Paul. Okay, so December 23rd, 1990. Carla's family went to bed, uh, but Carla and Paul, they asked Tammy to stay up and they could sneak some alcoholic beverages together while everyone was asleep. So Carla made the the drinks for everybody. She would end up crushing up pills to put in Tammy's drink. Now at this time, um, Carla was working at a veterinarian clinic and she stole animal tranquilizers from there to use on Tammy. Now these pills would knock anyone out and Carla thought like it would be best to use these to keep her sister asleep while Paul raped her. Carla also soaked a rag in halothane, which is a general anesthetic. She held it over her sister's face while Paul raped her. They also busted out a video camera and recorded the entire thing, you know, for Christmas memories, sick. Now, when Paul was done, he told Carla, it's your turn, your turn to assault your sister, which, She did, and they also recorded on tape. Now soon after, Tammy began to vomit, and she started to choke. So Paul and Carla, they're kind of freaking out. They quickly dress her, they hide the camera, and then they call an ambulance. So when the paramedics arrive, Paul and Carla told them that they tried to revive Tammy after she passed out from drinking, but like, they don't know. Tammy ended up being taken to the hospital where she was later pronounced dead. So one of the doctors that was examining Tammy noticed a burn around her mouth um, where Carla was holding the halothane uh, soaked rag. She had like a burn around her mouth. Carla and Paul said that it was rug burn on her face when they pulled her, they pulled her off the bed onto the floor. They're trying to revive her. She she got rug burn on her face. And like that was a good enough answer for them. It was concluded that Tammy died of natural causes. At 15, she died of natural causes. So that makes sense. Carla's parents were devastated, but they honestly thought that her death was just a tragic accident. Teenagers, you know, they just experiment with drugs and alcohol. So like Tammy must've just been experimenting and she just took it too far. And it was like nothing more than that, which is just awful. It's so sad. So a month goes by. Carla and Paul have saved enough money to get their own place. It's a two-story home in Port Dalhousie. It's a small town near St. Catharines. Um, it's a cute little house too. Well, it's since been knocked down, but it was a cute house that they just ruined. So when the two moved into their own place, it said that's when Paul's abuse really went up a notch. He would jokingly tell Carla that he was a Scarborough rapist and went from just being verbally abusive, which is still awful, to now physically abusive towards Carla. Now, when Carla would tell Paul that she was she was leaving him or she wanted to leave, he would threaten her, saying that he was gonna go to police and tell them about her involvements in Tammy's death. You know, and he had the videotapes to prove it. So if he was gonna go down, she was gonna go down too. Carla said that she felt like she really couldn't leave. June 15th, 1991 two weeks before Carla and Paul's wedding. Paul came home with a surprise for Carla. Now you would think like flowers or something, but no, of course not. Paul came home, with a 14 year old girl named Leslie Mahaffey. Paul said that Leslie was in her own backyard and he pulled up in his car. He offered the girl a cigarette, which was back in his car. And when she approached the car, she got in and then he kidnapped her. Carla and Paul ended up holding her captive in their home assaulting her repeatedly, all while recording the attacks on videotape. So after holding her captive for about 24 hours, the couple ended up strangling her, then dismembering her body. They took different parts of her body and they like mixed it in with concrete blocks. Then they dumped it into the local lake, um, Lake Gibson. They dumped it in there. On July 29th, 1991, Carla and Paul, that's when they got married in a ceremony with over a hundred friends and family around to celebrate their special day. But on that very same day, a fisherman came across some of the body parts of the 14-year-old victim, Leslie Mahaffey, in the lake. It was all over the news. People were just like, in the community, were just horrified, like it was, it's I mean it is like such a brutal what the heck so it was just everywhere so over the next year police looked for any clues into the, who the teenager's killer could be and that's when they brought in the same FBI profiler from the Scarborough rapist case now at the time the FBI profiler he said he had no he had no reason to connect the two cases which sounds absolutely ridiculous but he didn't. So there was no connection being made between the two. And they didn't really have any leads either. So time went on and you know, Paul and Carla's life continued as newlyweds. But of course, like Paul was just probably, I don't really know, cause you know, I don't know, but I'm assuming he was probably getting cocky because he's like getting away with this. And he's just wanting more, he's wanting more because he feels like he can get away with it, because he is getting away with it. So Paul asked Carla to get in touch with some of her sister's Tammy's best friends. He was like, hey, get them on the phone, invite them over, have them come over to the house, where then we can drug them the same way that we did to Tammy. So over the next year, Carla actually was able to get several young women to go over to, not even young women, young girls, to come over to the home and hang out where they would then drug and sexually assault them. Now these victims would survive their attacks. Um, They would wake up the next day having no memory of the night before or of the assaults. Some of these attacks were also caught on videotape where they videotaped it and it was kept in Paul's growing collection. April 16th, 1992, Paul and Carla went on a drive on an afternoon cruise, but only with the intention of bringing home a new sex slave to keep. That's when they spotted um, 15-year-old Kristen French. She was walking home from school. They drive past her and they pull into a church parking lot, um, like it was a little ways ahead of her. And then they were just waiting for her to walk by. Carla was sitting in the passenger seat and she called out to Kristen, asking like, hey, can you help us with directions? Because like we're lost. And Carla was holding a map, so it just, it seemed legit. She walks up to the car, and then that's when Kristen was shoved into the car, and then the couple drove off heading back to their house. Now, it wasn't long until Kristen was reported missing, and then many witnesses came forward saying that they saw Kristen in the church parking lot, and she was talking to a car that had two people inside of it. The witnesses also reported seeing them drive away in a beige Camaro. So now that they had a description of the car, police started searching heavily for a beige Camaro. Now there were tons of billboards put up or posted around saying, have you seen this car? Have you seen this car? And then on the billboard, there was a picture of the beige Camaro. But what they didn't know was that the eyewitness reports were actually incorrect. Paul actually drove a gold colored Nissan, not a Camaro. I could see the confusion, how that could happen, but it still wasted a lot of time because they were looking for a beige Camaro and you know, it wasn't a Camaro, it was a Nissan. So the media started linking the disappearance of Kristen French to the murder of Leslie Mahaffey. They were just like, hey, these things gotta be linked, right? Now the FBI profiler, I'm laughing because like, You just think he would have made this connection, but he, he didn't. The FBI profiler described the suspect as being a white male in their late 20s, probably had a history of sexually violent crimes, a history of domestic violence, someone who was most likely violent in their personal relationships. Kind of like the Scarborough Rapist, but still no connection was being made. Paul and Carla ended up keeping Kristen French for several, several days. They videotaped her assaults just to add to their growing collection. And then when Paul was satisfied, that's when they strangled and they killed her. On April 30th, 1992, Kristen's body was found more than 30 miles away in Burlington, and it was left in a ditch not far from the local cemetery just all around awful. And then in January of 1993, Paul ended up beating Carla up just like so bad to the point that she went to the local emergency room to receive treatment. Paul had attacked her with a torch and he ended up giving her two really bad like black eyes, a broken rib and severe bruising. After two years of marriage, it was at this point that Carla decided to leave Paul. Now around this same time, Finally, Paul's DNA was being submitted and tested for the Scarborough uh, rapist case. His DNA was positively identified as the man responsible for these attacks. So police finally are connecting the two. The murders in St. Catharines, they finally had their person. So before going straight to Paul, police actually, they reached out to Carla and they wanted to like create a wedge in the relationship, knowing that they, that they could probably get more information from Carla. Now, Carla thought that she was being called into um, to be questioned about the domestic assault. But after the interview with police, Carla went back to her family home and she ended up breaking down she confessed to everything. Carla was afraid that the police they already knew what she what she was involved with or at least the police were close to uncovering the truth and she wanted to tell her parents before, you know, shit hit the fan. I'm sure her parents were like devastated. I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know, but Her parents suggested that she hire a lawyer, which Carla ended up doing. So she told her lawyer that Paul was indeed the Scarborough rapist and also admitted to being involved in the two local murders and the death of her own sister. Carla would end up agreeing to testify against Paul in court um, in exchange for a reduced sentence for herself. So police end up agreeing to this And then Carla sits down with police and gives them a full confession. The great debate around this story—well, there's a lot of great debates around this story. But one of them is like Carla's involvement. Okay, she told police, you know, that she's she was a victim and stuff, and Paul like forced her to do this and whatnot. I saw clips of her being questioned by police, and let me just say. I think she's like new, she's a little smarter than she let on. Because when she goes to like be questioned by police, first of all, she's dressed like a very innocent little schoolgirl, okay? Which is fine, like that's, that's fine, but that's not normally how she would dress, okay? So she was trying to play up this like, I'm so innocent thing. And then she would answer all of her questions just very, like very innocent. She'd be like, then he chopped her up and I just was so scared. Yeah, so I was just there. Like that's how she talks the whole time. Okay, so after Paul gets arrested, which I'm kind of jumping here, but Paul gets arrested. And then they ask Carla to go around their house and show like where Paul did things at, like describe in detail where things took place. I'm not kidding. She takes them into the bathroom, the police and all them, and she's like, This is where we put her and then we we bathed her in the bathtub and then we dismembered her. And then she turns around to like where the kitchen, not the kitchen, the bathroom sink and all that's at. And she's like, can I ask you guys something? Where did all of my perfumes go? I had a bunch of perfume samples in here and I'm just wondering where they all went because the detectives took everything and I don't know where my, my stuff went. And you're just like, girl, read the room. You just talked about dismembering a girl and you're wondering where your perfume's at. Like it was just like, okay. And then she doesn't really show a lot of emotion, but then the moment she talks about one of the victims came over, Paul like took out really expensive um, champagne flutes. Is that what they're called? Like the glasses that you put in champagne. And you could just see all of a sudden she just, her emotion comes out over these, these glasses that Paul decided to use to drug the girls with. So she was like, those glasses, they were from France and they were very expensive and we never used them. They were only for a special occasion and I was so mad. And like, she's getting all worked up over Paul's choice of glasses that he used. And like, that's one of the only times you see her like getting worked up over something and you're like, okay, girl, this doesn't make, okay. Okay. And then like it it just keeps happening cuz then she's like describing again like what's what happened and then she's like can I ask you something? Do you know where all of my furniture went because they just came and they took all of the furniture and I'm just wondering where they went with my furniture? Can I get it back? Do you not understand like what's happening right now? Like you Hello? And then another one, they were in like the basement. She sees a book on the ground. She goes, excuse me, can I have this book? Because my sister really wants it. She's been asking about this book and I'm just wondering if I could take this book. <sighs> and that's like the only time that you get these little snippets of like, mm. "Hmm, hmm hmm, hmm. So Carla kept telling police that Paul forced her to participate in all of the attacks against her will. Carla also told police that there were videotapes in the house that would have everything they needed because everything was recorded. So she's like, you have to get those tapes, they're in the house. On February 17th, 1993, That's when Paul Bernardo was arrested. They began searching the home, their goal being to find those tapes because that was gonna be their smoking gun. They would end up spending 71 days searching the home, but the police could not locate these videotapes, which, Carla claimed showed the attacks. Now, without these tapes, they had no direct evidence that linked Paul to the crimes. So they arranged the plea agreement with Carla because they're heavily relying on her to give her testimony. That's what's gonna put Paul behind bars. And in exchange, Carla would receive a reduced sentence for her involvement, which this deal was kept secret from the public and that caused a whole upset. On June 28th, 1993, Carla appeared in court for her involvement with the crimes and the court put a publication ban on her trial, which was very unlikely of the courts to do. This caused a huge upset with the media and the public was angered because their right to know was being denied. And like, this was a really, really big case. So people are just trying to figure out what happened. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to mention like, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but from my understanding, it was the US who gave them the title of the Ken and Barbie killers. Like they would, you know? Um, because of their good looks. Like, oh my God, they're so good looking. How could they be killers? So Carla was convicted on manslaughter charges and she ended up receiving a 12 year sentence, which again, caused a lot of upset. The plea agreement was said to be kept a secret in order to make sure that Paul had a fair trial. So Carla was sent to prison. And then on August 2nd, 1993, she ended up filing for divorce from Paul. On May 18, 1995, Paul's trial began. Paul pleaded not guilty on nine charges in connections with the deaths of Leslie and Kristen, including kidnapping, unlawful confinement, aggravated sexual assault, and murder. The prosecutors had presented new evidence during trial that was not known about, they ended up finding the videotapes in the couple's home. I know it was kind of like a surprise. I don't know where they found it or like where, I don't know, I didn't, What they found it though. I think that's great. Now this was the first time that they had direct evidence against Paul, but also Carla. As well. Now, these tapes revealed a completely different version of events, and they felt that Carla had completely misled authorities. Because on the tapes, Carla was seen fully participating in the attacks, had the tapes surfaced sooner or earlier, it most likely would have affected her plea deal. So Paul's team was like, oh shit, like they got the tapes, you know? But they're like, yeah, Paul's on the tapes, but they never show him murdering anyone, you know? (laughs) Paul instead was like, it wasn't me who murdered them. I was not the killer. It was actually Carla who murder the victims. On June 19th, 1995, Carla testified against Paul, and that's where she stated that she was also a victim to Paul and he was the mastermind behind it all. When Carla was asked about the videotapes, she said that she suffered from battered spouse syndrome and that was her reasoning. Many believe that like, yes, she was indeed abused by Paul, but she could not be classified as a person suffering from battered spouse syndrome. In talking about battered spouse syndrome, they were mainly talking about people who were like suffering from tremendous psychological abuse. But these tapes showed that Carla was more of an accomplice in the horrible crimes versus a victim. The judge allowed the jurors to watch the videotapes and only allowed the public to listen to them, but not view it. They didn't wanna put the family through more grief by viewing these tapes because of just how awful they were. Paul's trial lasted months. At the end of it, the jury deliberated for five hours. then on September 1st, 1995, 31 year old Paul Bernardo was found guilty of all nine charges against him, including the two Murders. Paul was sentenced to life in prison. While Paul is sitting in prison, he also confessed to 14 more sexual assaults of women in the Scarborough area. And the judge declared him just a dangerous offender, which will most likely keep him in prison without the chance of parole for the rest of his life. Because he does have a possibility of parole after like 25 years, I believe. But let's hope that he does not get out because it sounds like he's he would do it again. Like, come on. So the great debate around this case was if Carla got off way too easily. Many believe that Carla was just as sick, if not more sick than Paul was. Now, whatever was on these tapes showed a completely different side of Carla, but also just a different story. I didn't see them. I don't want to see them, so I didn't look it up. But just based off of what I was hearing um, from, Interviews with the police department and stuff and the jurors. It was really bad. Carla seemed thrilled to be there. Do you know what I'm saying? Carla's plea deal became known as one of the worst in. Canadian history. The following year, an investigation was done on the investigation into Paul and Carla's case as to why they fell through the cracks and how this could be prevented in the future. I guess since then they have tried to implement a new system for tracking serial predators, improving communication between police departments and hoping to never have a case like this go unsolved for as long as it did. So then on July 4th, 2005, 30, five-year-old Carla was released from prison, having served just 12 years behind bars. Now, Carla couldn't go back to St. Catharines, okay? She was not welcome there. So instead, she moved to Montreal and started a new life there. Carla said that she still had nightmares about the girls and felt great remorse for what she did, and then she also went to the courts in hopes to get a name change, but she was denied the right to changing her name because she is a public figure. So she wasn't allowed to do that. So over the years, she remarried and she went on to have three kids of her own. From what I could find, as of 2020, it was said that she no longer lives with her children or husband. And there was a period of time where she was like a volunteer at a, a primary school. And like that caused obviously a lot of outrage because she was working with kids or young adults and like nobody did a background check and maybe thought that's not a good fit. It seems like wherever she goes, she's just not welcome anywhere she goes. I mean, for good reason. I personally believe that Carla, yeah, she should have been locked up for a lot longer. Okay, and like even, cause okay, so I went to the museum of death in Los Angeles and they have their personal photos there on display, you can go there and oh, it's just be prepared. You go there and they have all the photos. And this was like before I really even knew much about the case, but this image has been burned into my brain because it's Carla like smiling all big and she's holding up. She's like holding up someone's head. She's like, she just was excited. But yeah, I think she should have spent a lot more time behind bars. I mean, she killed her own damn sister. The hell, I forgot about that. Yeah, girl, no, no. No, Mm -mm. out, out, go. And that my friends is the awful story about Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. Um, Thank you for recommending this awful story. Are you happy? Do you think that Carla should be in prison for a lot longer? That's a hot debate. Love and appreciate you guys. I hope you have a great day. You make good choices. And I'll be seeing you guys later, bye.